Well, good evening and welcome to our online service. Uh, we're really glad that you can join us today. Uh, before we begin, just a reminder that after the church service tonight, around uh, 10 past 7, uh, we're having our coffee time. Uh, if you uh, haven't had a link for that, then do let me know um, well, pretty quickly, uh, and I'll be able to send that to you. And it would be good for us to be able to join together uh, after church. We're going to begin our time of worship together by singing. Uh, we're going to sing a song that tells the story, really, of Jesus from his birth uh, to his coming again. Uh, we're going to sing together from the squalor of a borrowed stable.
As we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what thoughts or words come to your mind when you hear his name. I say words or thoughts in the plural because there's so much we can say about Jesus. There's so many facets to who he is. He cannot be summed up with one word or one thought. But usually words that come to mind are things like loving and gentle and kind and and powerful. Uh, In terms of thoughts, you may think of uh, a baby in the manger. You may think of the wonderful miracles that Jesus did. And of course, all of these things uh, wonderfully are absolutely true. We read about all of these things in God's Word. We praise Him for it. We thank Him for it. Uh, But one thought that perhaps doesn't enter uh, people's minds quite so much is the uh, concept that the Bible presents of Jesus as an angry judge, a judge who will bring justice and judge people for uh, their sins. It doesn't quite sound as nice as loving and gentle and kind and so on, but nevertheless, this is an important aspect of Jesus which we praise him for. And one place where this is presented very uh, graphically Uh, and dramatically, is in the book of Revelation. And we're going to read uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 uh, to 21. So if you would turn there now, and you can uh, follow along with that passage, Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 22. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in mid-air, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. This is the word of God. 
Well, we're going to pray now. Uh, and during this time of prayer, there's going to be uh, a time where I'm going to pause so that you can bring uh, some names to God. Hopefully that will be clear as, as we pray. So let's bow our heads now and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is our King and Saviour. And we want to praise you that uh, Jesus is Judge. And we praise you for this and thank you for this because you are a God who is just and who does what is right. We live in a world of much injustice. And so we thank you that we know and can look forward to that day when all of these injustices will be dealt with and come to an end. We know Lord, that we deserve your judgment, <clears throat> but we know that Jesus has taken the judgment on our behalf. So great is your love for us. Help us, Lord, not to forget the great love which you have for us. Help us never to feel that we in any way deserve your favor. Remind us that we are saved by grace. But as we consider your judgment, O oh Lord, we fear for the many who have not sought your forgiveness offered through the death of Jesus Christ. And so we take the time now, Lord, to pray for some of those that we know who face your judgment. We name them now before you, Lord. We do not ask you for these souls because we think that they are deserving. We plead with you because you are a judge who is gracious and loving and kind. And we ask you these things in the name of Jesus, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Amen. As we see a description like that in Revelation and as we see the judge judging in Matthew chapter 23 this evening, uh, we should recognize our own sin and how we deserve that judgment ourselves. But our next song tells another part of the story. It helps us to remember that whilst we should recognize our own sin, we fall upon the God of grace.
turn in your Bibles now to Matthew uh, chapter 23. Uh, This evening we're going to uh, continue on in that chapter from verse 13 uh, down to verse uh, 39. So if you would turn there uh, now and follow along with me. Well, I mentioned when we uh, had our Bible reading that amidst the multifaceted uh, description of Jesus in the Scriptures, uh, one of the presentations of him is as the judge. And whilst this may not be the most popular image of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is precisely what we see in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Last week, uh, you may remember as we saw uh, there, Jesus addressed the crowds and the disciples in the temple. And he exposed the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, whilst he exalted humble servanthood. Uh, the kind of humility that marked his ministry and ought to mark and does really mark uh, the disciples of Jesus. And although addressing the crowds and disciples, because Jesus was in the temple courts, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have been in earshot of what he was saying. And as this chapter progresses, we get to verse 13 tonight where Jesus turns his words really towards those Pharisees and teachers of the law. On this day in the temple, we see Jesus the judge. The way Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and teachers of the law is like a judge sentencing in a courtroom. He summarizes the charges and then he condemns the felons. And we're going to look at the rest of this uh, chapter over this week and the next. And we're going to see really three uh, parts to Jesus the judge. We're going to see tonight how Jesus the judge brings charges against these Pharisees and teachers of the law. And then next week we're going to see how uh, the judge brings condemnation. And then also how the judge shows compassion, a compassionate judge. So today we're just going to see the specific charges that Jesus brings, and then next week the condemnation and the compassion of the judge. So let's read though the the whole of this chapter, and as we do so, hopefully you'll see uh, how those things fit. So let's read from verse 13 of Matthew uh, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, You hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. 
Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift of the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete that which your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation." Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." This is God's word. So first of all, we see the judge brings charges. What we see in these verses is a series of seven woes. The word woe is an expression of sadness and 
regret. It means this is really bad for you. And this also is at the same time terribly sad. And in this passage, there are seven of them, uh, possibly indicating uh, completeness of judgment, because often in the Bible, the number seven signifies completion. And these woes really are broken down into three pairs of woes and an indictment at the end with the seventh woe. Now, before looking at these charges, it's also worth defining what a hypocrite is. Uh, Notice throughout this passage how often the word hypocrite is repeated over and over. Now, we saw the word hypocrite last week when Jesus exposed hypocritical religion, meaning religion that says one thing but lives another. And the meaning of hypocrite in Greek really means an actor, someone who wears a mask to play a part in a a theater production. What Jesus does here is seven times in four pairs, it's three pairs, removes the mask and shows the reality underneath, and then does so with the seventh woe at the end as well. But before we look at these charges in uh, detail, there's something else I think is really important that we, we, we note and grasp. Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But these words are a warning to us. God's word is like a mirror that's held up before our face so that we can see what is reflected back at us, what we look like. And all of us in different ways, if we look in the mirror of God's word, will find that we have been and are in many ways hypocrites in the ways that are being described here. And it is vital that as Jesus brings the charges against these religious leaders, we also examine our own hearts and see where we are guilty of falling into these kinds of behaviors, of wearing these masks, so that we can seek God's forgiveness and repent of our sin and follow Jesus Christ. So pay attention to what's being said here. This isn't just for some religious leaders thousands of years ago, or even just for those we classify as religious hypocrites today, this is for us too. Pay attention. So there's seven woes in three pairs and a final woe. Let's look at them and examine our own hearts. And so the first charge is this. They wore the mask of being evangelists, but the reality was they closed the door to heaven and open the door to hell. So the religious leaders, uh, they, they really believed that they were the, the gatekeepers to the kingdom of God. They believed that they had arrived there. So when Jesus in the gospel said that they needed to repent because he is inaugurating God's kingdom, the Pharisees uh, and religious leaders were appalled at what Jesus was saying. They, not Jesus, could define God's kingdom. And they wanted people to join them in what they believed was God's kingdom. They were missionaries. Notice in verse 15 how they traveled over land and sea to win just one single convert. At least, that was the mask. They masked up as evangelists, but notice what Jesus says about them in verse 13. 
you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Jesus, the one who came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, had crowds of people listening to him and following him. And these religious leaders who he's calling out here constantly opposed him. They called him Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. They plotted to kill him. We've just come off the back of attempts to humiliate him by trapping him in his words. Some people who would have been interested in following Jesus would have been put off from following him and entering the kingdom because the religious leaders put Jesus down. They closed the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces by that kind of behavior against Jesus. But they opened the door to hell. Notice at the end of verse 15, when they make uh, their own converts, he says, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. A child of hell describes where this teaching has come from and where the people that believe it are destined to go. Their teaching and lifestyle reflect the hell from which it came. And those who follow the Pharisees and their religion of public showmanship try to outdo one another in that showmanship. Their followers try, if you like, to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. They want to impress their teachers who... Uh, in, in the way that they behave and teach, extol showing off how wonderfully religious you are. And so their followers become twice as bad as they are because they're always trying to uh, do this game of one-upmanship in their religious behavior. These Pharisees had faith in their own good works, their own religiosity, and they led others to do the same. And a faith in your own good works and how good you are only will make you a child of hell. What a tragedy. And yet we can so easily ourselves lead people away from God's kingdom. We do this when we, like the Pharisees, portray a Christianity that is all about how good we are and the amazing things we do rather than amaze them with the grace and wonder of God. When we get people to look at what we do, rather than what Christ has done, we are show-offs. And I have to say, it's easy uh, for me, when I speak to, to non-Christians, to tell them about all the good things we do as a church. Isn't it good that we, we have work for the, the children going on and and and, and help people, and all those things are easy to talk about to the world. It's ever so much harder to point them to, to Jesus. But that's what we should be doing, because otherwise we lead them away from the kingdom of God, potentially. But also, people are led away from Christ when a false gospel is preached. For example, a gospel that says, if you believe in Jesus, then you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and happy all the day. That kind of thing leads people to, to wander away from God's kingdom because they're thinking they're entering it, but are doing so on false pretenses. 
But all of us too are examples in one way or another. Does your life, by example, lead people to see how wonderful God is? To see how gracious God is? Do your good deeds that you do lead people, as Jesus tells us to in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, to glorify your Father in heaven? Ask yourself this. Does your Christian life open the door to heaven and close the door to hell for people? Don't be fooled into thinking that this is just for the religious leaders. There's a challenge here for us too, isn't there? So that was the first mask that was ripped off. Here is another. The mask was that these religious leaders were guides to the people. But in reality, they're blind fools. I mean, they, they were seen as guides because they sat, remember, on Moses' seat, the place where they taught God's word. But Jesus calls them in verse 16 blind guides. And he gives two examples that show behind the mask of being a guide, shows that they were blind fools. The first example he gives is a familiar one to us if we've been following Matthew's gospel. Uh, he gives the example of swearing oaths. So uh, Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount, and he spoke about it in Matthew 15. Now, people make oaths to enhance the trustworthiness of something. So if we go to court, we have to swear uh, to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we make an oath that we swear we will do that. But it isn't okay to lie if we haven't made an oath, is it? We don't think, well, I haven't made the oath, so therefore it's okay to not tell the truth. We're supposed to tell the truth all the time and, and keep our word when we say that we'll do something. But that was not the case with the Pharisees. To the Pharisees, an oath was only binding depending on what you swore on. And so Jesus gives two examples here. If the oath was sworn on the temple... It was not binding. But if it was on the gold of the temple, well, then they've got to do what they said they would do. Or in verse 18, if they swore on the altar, it didn't mean anything. But if it was on the gift on the, on the altar, well, then it was. And so they would have made all sorts of vows, and people would have expected them to keep them, but then they could get out of them because they said, oh, actually, I, I just said it was the temple, not the gold on the temple. You see? Well, Jesus says that this is both foolish and illogical. How can the gold in the temple be more sacred than the temple itself? How can the gift on the altar be greater than the altar? The point Jesus makes is not what you can or cannot swear on, but on the foolishness of thinking that you cannot be bound by an oath that you make at all. Ultimately, if you're making an oath, it is before God himself who does see all. Jesus summed up this point in the Sermon on the Mount. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. And the second example of the, these uh, people being blind guides is the subject of tithing. We see in verses 23 and 24, Jesus says that these religious leaders were really fastidious. 
about giving a tenth of their mint and dill and cumin, which was above and beyond what they were asked to give in the law of Moses. But they neglected something far more important, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These characteristics reflect God and should reflect those who are in God's kingdom. But rather than focusing on those characteristics that reflect God, they focused on the small things, the mint and the dill and the cumin, and made sure that they gave that bit above and beyond what even they were supposed to. Jesus said in verse 23, you should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, whilst not neglecting the former. So it's right to tithe. Jesus says, by all means, tithe. God wants that from you, but it doesn't mean that uh, you, you can, it doesn't mean all that much if you're tithing, but are not reflecting his character in the way that you live your life. You know, the Christian life is, is not just a standing order that you can give into, your bank, into a church bank account and then you think you're okay. We're called to reflect the character of God. And verse 24 is a, a humorous illustration. Uh, both gnats and camels were unclean animals. So the, the Israelites were not allowed to eat them. And the Jewish people would, uh, with, with wine, strain it so that, the, like for a colander, if you like, so that the gnats were, were, were strained out of the wine so that the wine they drank could be pure. But Jesus says, you've done that. You've, you've got your pure wine, but you've swallowed a whole camel. So you've got the, the tiny gnat which they strain out, but they swallow in a whole camel. And they didn't even realize it. And we can be like this. We can be really hot on how long we pray and read our Bibles for. How many points we might get in a Bible quiz. How we might keep the Sabbath. What time we get up in the morning. How disciplined we are in all sorts of areas of our lives. But it's meaningless, really, if we're neglecting to apply God's Word to our lives in the way that we love our spouses and our children and our parents and, and so on and so forth. I can assure you that God would rather you spend five minutes less time reading your Bible if instead you would put what you do read into practice. We can also get ourselves all worked up over what are relatively trivial and small matters in church life. Things like what style of music we play, or what the preacher is wearing, or how noisy the children are, and so on. We can make a song and a dance about those things, but neglect the bigger importance of church unity, of welcoming people, of praying for one another, and helping one another. Another example, which often happens, is that uh, people can miss the point of the Lord's Supper. We're there to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we miss that because we're watching who or who is not taking the Lord's Supper. We miss the bigger point, that Jesus has died for our sins, and we need to remember that and thank him for that and so on. Don't strain a gnat without realizing that you've swallowed a camel. Because swallowing a camel will give you bellyache. And you'll give that also to other people. Well, the challenge continues with the third mask. 
The mask of being externally clean when the reality was they were internally filthy. And Jesus gives two examples of being clean on the outside, but really filthy on the inside. The first example is in verses 25 and 26. Uh, Cleaning the cup and dish was part of the ceremonial washing to take away impurities. And Jesus says that they clean the outside and it looks really good, and it looks all shiny, but there's something ugly lurking on the inside. Greed and self-indulgence. Now, greed could also be translated as uh, robbery or extortion. And so we, what we see is that the religious leaders, they look lovely on the outside, but behind the scenes, behind the curtain of the stage, if you like, they were benefiting and lining their pockets off of the poor and the vulnerable. And it was very ugly indeed. And Jesus says in verse 26 that the Pharisees are blind if they think that only external righteousness will do. They are blind if they can't see beyond the external righteousness to what is lurking beneath that inside. You've got to clean the inside of the cup first, Jesus says, and then the outside will be clean. And we see this uh, often throughout the New Testament. Uh, We're taught this throughout, aren't we? That it's internal heart change that is needed And then that internal heart change works its way out into the way that we live our lives externally. We are never going to satisfy God by just having a shiny exterior. We need a changed heart, which is impossible to do unless Jesus gives us new hearts, which he does uh, in the gospel. God is certainly not blind, and he's not a fool He is not fooled by a shiny exterior. He knows what is beneath. Another example of this is given in verses 27 and 28 with these uh, whitewashed tombs. Now, at this time, uh, people would walk to Jerusalem for the big feasts. And as they would walk, uh, the people were buried all over the place on, on on the journey. And the tombs were not always very clear. And the problem was, if someone was walking to Jerusalem for a feast and they stumbled across one of these tombs, they would become ritually unclean. And so imagine you've traveled uh, for days to get to Jerusalem and just before you arrived there, you stumbled on a grave and so you can't even participate in the temple activities of that feast. So what people used to do a week before the Passover was whitewash all of the tombs on the way up to Jerusalem. That way, the tombs would be made clear for people to see, and so they could avoid them on their journey. And the care with which these tombs were whitewashed made them look beautiful on the outside. But however beautiful or ornate a tomb is, what is underneath that tomb is still a dead body, and a pile of, or a pile of bones. Do you see Jesus' point? If not, he spells it out again. Look at verse 28. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And as Christians, we can be ever so good at putting on a show We looked a bit at this last week, didn't we? We can spend our time trying to make people think we are really good. 
We can have a mask of being really good when in secret we're looking at pornography, we're being nasty to our families, or we're being lazy and just doing nothing. It's much harder to live the Christian life in the secret places, isn't it? It's easy to have our Bibles open at church. How often are they open at home? It's easy to raise our hands in worship, in church, in front of everybody. But how often are you on your knees at home in secret? How often do we want to present a happy family in public and want our children to look good so that we look good as parents? But how much do you care about their righteousness when no one's looking? How much do you care that they are truly saved from their sin rather than just looking good around other people don't live your life as a external show a good friend of mine once challenged me by telling me who you are in secret is who you are and that is so true so we've seen six woes in three pairs And Jesus culminates with the final charge in verses 29 to 32. They put on a mask of honoring God's messengers, but the reality was that they were murdering God's Messiah. The religious leaders worked really hard at honoring the prophets of the past. They built great uh, monuments to them and and tombs, and they decorated them uh, in a similar way to the way that we have monuments and statues uh, to our national heroes today. And in verse 30, look at what they say. If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So that they, 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 they make these monuments and they say, well, but we, we would never have killed them because we, we know how great they are. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this about uh, this verse. Ask in Moses' time who were the good people. They will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not Moses. He should be stoned. Ask in Samuel's time who are the good people. They will be Moses and Joshua, but not Samuel. Ask in the times of Christ who are such. They will be all the former prophets with Samuel, but not Christ and his apostles. You see, in verse 31, Jesus says that they are right to say here they are descendants of those who killed the prophets because just like their ancestors, they killed the ones that God sends in their days. They're no different. Jesus is that messenger. Jesus is that final prophet. Jesus is the Messiah, and they want to kill him. And in just a couple of days from where Jesus is speaking, we come to the Friday where Jesus is killed. And knowing this, Jesus says to them in verse 32, Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. They followed in their ancestors' footsteps by murdering the Messiah, the final messenger from God. We saw this exemplified perfectly in chapter 21 in the parable of the wicked tenants. Do you remember in that parable that the, vine- the, the, the owner of the vineyard sent messenger after messenger and they were killed and finally he sends his son and they kill him too. 
And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they knew that this parable was spoken against them. And here Jesus doesn't speak in a parable. He's very explicit. You are like your ancestors. Uh, the, uh, Stephen in Acts points this out as well. Acts chapter 7, verse 52. He says to them, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Now we might be thinking, whilst all the other charges, yeah, okay, I can see how I might do those things. I was not involved in the murder of Jesus. It was thousands of years, 2,000 years ago. Well, don't be so sure about that. The Bible teaches us that he died for our sins. And so it was our sin that put him there as much as it was the plotting of the Pharisees and religious leaders. And for all those who don't trust in Jesus, your rejection of him is just like that of the religious leaders in Jesus' time. We all of us have a part to play in the murder of Jesus Christ. But as we, must, as we end this part of the chapter with the murder of Jesus... It is that death which also gives us hope. Because if we can see that the cross was done by us, we can begin to see that the cross was done for us. If we can see that it is done by us, we can see it is done for us. Our sin placed him there. All the things that Jesus has charged the Pharisees and teachers of the law here, we are guilty of those things. Our sin placed him there and he went there to pay for that sin so that we can be forgiven for all of our hypocrisy. This is summed up really well in the Stuart Town End hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. He says... Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Tonight has been a real challenge, hasn't it? And it's right that we spend time confessing to God how we are guilty of these charges and how we still struggle with them, but we can be forgiven of them because Jesus has paid for them all. And because he has come back to life, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that as we are on our knees confessing our sin, we can rise again from our knees with the power to live lives by the Spirit that are without masks and that reflect in our lives the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may that be the reflection of Jesus without masks be our heart's desire and our goal in the days and the weeks ahead. Before our final hymn, we're going to say together as a congregation uh, a prayer of confession. 
Uh, as it's uh, easier to do at home, if you uh, want to go on your knees uh, to, to do this, uh, that's an appropriate uh, posture for uh, a prayer of this kind. Uh, feel free to do that if you wish. I'm not saying you have to. But after we have said these words together of confession, we'll turn our attention to the place of forgiveness, the cross of Jesus Christ, as we'll sing together how deep the Father's love for us. So let us pray together this prayer of confession, just after a moment of quiet. Most merciful God and Father, give us true repentance for our sins. Open our eyes to recognize the truth about ourselves, so that acknowledging our faults, our weaknesses, and our failures, we may receive your forgiveness and find in Christ the power to serve and please you and bring honor and glory to your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Thanks be to God. <laughs> 